Good evening. Welcome to Sunday Night Live. Open up your songbooks, number 448. I love this song, and I love to hear the Waterford Church sing it. And so I may lead it every week until I leave. I'm not sure. But I have a few others I like to lead, too, on Sunday night, so we'll probably mix them up. If you don't mind, if it's convenient for you, if you can still read your songbook with your other hand, hold hands with the person next to you. I'll just come and put my hand on Chuck's shoulder. Listen to you recoiling from me. Love one another, for love is a God. He who loves is born of God, and no one's God. He who does not love, does not know God, for Altos continue. sermon in and of itself, isn't it? But lo and behold, you still have another sermon to go. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It is a very short passage, but you've listened to me long enough to know that doesn't mean anything. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, all hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. 
if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now, you remember that the context of the entire book of 1 Peter is it is written to encourage those who are going to endure persecution. And he has said over and over, trying to remind them and to remind us who we are. We are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are foreigners. We are aliens in a foreign land. We are citizens of a higher, greater kingdom. And so in that context, there's going to be a number of topics he's going to discuss that are necessary for people who are trying to hold on under enemy opposition, that are behind enemy lines, so to speak. And one of those is he's going to talk about keeping themselves fit, keeping themselves healthy, not physically, but spiritually. Interestingly, though, spiritual health parallels the same dynamics as physical health. You know, to be physically healthy, your doctor is going to always tell you about two things every single time. You got to exercise and you got to eat right. I mean, is anybody's doctor say anything different? I got a, saw a doctor one time to tell me in the presence of Lenora that there's nothing wrong with salt. Salt doesn't have anything to do with blood pressure. That was like 22 years ago, and I still try to bring him up. Well, Dr. Swanson said, she said, yes, but every doctor since has disagreed with that. But, you know, I try to hold on to it because somehow it was, you know, I, I like salt on stuff that I eat. So I thought, well, if I can get a doctor, but we do, we listen to him, right? Because there are some things we know are good for us and some things we know aren't. And if you're going to be in peak physical condition, those two things are absolutely essential. Exercise and diet. Now, we're going to talk about exercise a lot, spiritual exercise, throughout the course of 1 Peter. But these three little verses are full of information about the other element of fitness, which is a diet. Not a physical diet, but a spiritual diet. How important is it? Well, I remember the very first congregation where I preached, you'll remember me telling you about it in Pendleton, Oregon. We were there for a couple years, and uh, I remember there were some leaders in the church instituted elders about six months before we, we made our departure from there. And one of them was a brother by the name of Pete Bounds. And Pete Bounce was very sweet to a dumb young preacher, let me tell you. He was a, I'll never forget him. He was a great brother. We went and ate quite a bit at their home. Uh, Pete and I would go out to eat with our families after lunch on Sunday. And in that town, and I'm trying for the life of me, I can't remember which place it was because they're all the same. It was like a Sizzler or a, maybe a Bonanza or it might have been a Golden Corral. You know what I'm talking about, right? These are buffet places. <clears throat> and I remember you'd go through and they, you could get different meats and things, and then they would, you'd go to a big giant bar and pick out the rest of your stuff. And Pete Bounds, he knew how to eat. And if Lenora were here tonight, she's flown to Alabama. She's got a job interview in a couple of days. So she flew down there and to Mississippi. And so she's not here tonight. But if she were, she'd be, she'd be just cringing at this story because Pete Bounds and his wife would get in an argument every time we went to lunch at this place. 
because he would ask the person carving, you know, they'll have somebody carving some roast beef or carving some prime rib or something like that. And he'd say, give me the hunk of fat. And that's the term he used, the hunk of fat. He wanted, you know, the gelatinous bubbly stuff, you know? Like the stuff that's, you know, when you open up a can of Spam, it's got a bonus because it comes with its own gravy, right? I mean, that stuff. And so, and he ate it and he liked it. He liked it. And his wife would gripe at him, it's going to kill you. Well, Brother Pete Bounds, he died of a heart attack about five years later. I mean, so maybe it did. Maybe she was right. But he loved it. And he said, yeah, he said. And I remember Lenore saying, don't get any ideas. You ain't eating that. And to this day, if I get a good steak or prime rib, she, if she's with me, she makes me cut it off and put it to the side. If she's not with me, well, we won't go there. But, I mean, it wasn't good for him. He knew it wasn't good for him. He said, but, you know, sometimes you just got to live. I remember he said that. Honey, just let me live. She said, that's the problem. I want you to live longer. But it, it isn't good just to eat straight fat. It isn't good just to eat straight sweets, right? I mean, there's lots of things we know aren't very good for us that we ingest. And this section right here is about having the right spiritual diet. And this type of language is used all throughout the New Testament. You remember the Hebrew writer will talk about it pretty extensively. As he says, desire the pure, you desire the pure milk of the word. And that's a good thing. He said, but you should be moving on to meat, but all you want is the milk. And so here he's going to say it in this way, have the right kind of diet. Now, you know, there are those who don't take care of themselves. There are people who, you know, they're, we might call him Mr. Bloatburger, that guy who just eats and eats and eats. He's a glutton. You've got the fellow who's a couch potato. He never does anything physically. He has no activity. There's a person who's a workaholic. You know, they don't have the right balance in their life. That's not healthy. All of these things apply spiritually equally as they do physically. So in the text, he's going to first talk in verse one. He says, therefore, laying aside malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. He says, lay them aside. Abstain from these things. Don't ingest these into your mind. Don't make them a part of your diet. You know, the thing about things that are bad for you, why do they all have to be delicious? I mean, isn't that right? Now, I do like some things that typically people don't. I like Brussels sprouts. I do. And I like collard greens and all that kind of stuff. But everybody knows that the stuff people like the most is what? Cake, pie, ice cream, you know, big fat juicy steak, you know, all the stuff that maybe isn't the best for us. And I don't think that's any coincidence, is it? And that's also true when it comes to the things that we can choose with our mind to ingest or not. The things that are sometimes the most pleasing are the things which are the most damaging. Because we can be honest, they're, they're pleasing. I mean, he mentions a long laundry list here. Malice, that's just being mean. 
meanness, being hurtful. And I'll tell you, there is a part, no one would admit this, okay? But we're being honest with this tonight. No one's going to say, I like being mean to people. But clearly, people do like being mean to people. Why? Because there's a whole lot of mean people in the world. I mean, why would you have things like peer pressure? Why would you have things like bullying? If there wasn't some sick satisfaction to mistreating other people, there is. And sometimes that satisfaction is just the satisfaction of getting back or letting them know your mind or setting them straight, whatever it may be. And with Christians, typically this isn't a, you know, we aren't obese on meanness and on malice, but we do tend to sample it a little bit, don't we? I mean, we eat the cupcakes sometimes when it comes to malice. And I know it because I've sat with Christians and I've been this person, I'm ashamed to admit, at times when I get a waitress that doesn't serve me the way I want her to. And sometimes there's a cupcake right there, right? Or, you know, somebody on the road, just the other day, somebody was honking at me and I'm like, what are you honking at me about? I'm hoping that in Mississippi their horns don't work because in, in, in Michigan they work. Everybody's horns work and they use them, you know? And I mean, everybody's in such a hurry all the time and it's like, okay, I took a half a second longer to start accelerating at this stoplight and they're already laying on the horn. And you know what? When that happens and I hear that behind me, there's a cupcake right there. Mm-hmm. And it looks and tastes good, doesn't it? Doesn't it? He says, but here's the problem. Once you have a cupcake, there ain't nobody in the world who's ever just wanted one. Now, sometimes we have the discipline to only have one. But the truth is, is cupcakes beget cupcakes. They just do. And when you have one, you want to have another And the more that we practice malice, even when we think that malice is justified, because when it's justified is when it's satisfying, isn't it? I mean, I don't think anybody in here struggles with malice just for the sake of being mean. Now, there are people, gluttonous, worldly people who just live on the cupcakes of malice. There are, but that's not you. That's not me. But I'll tell you, The more often we eat that cupcake, the easier it is to be quick, to be ugly to somebody, to lash out in anger, because, you know, it's easy to justify, well, they deserved it. He says, just eliminate it from your diet. Eliminate it from your diet. Here's a good practice. This does not mean Christians need to be weak people. It does not mean they need to be cowardly people. Here's what it does mean. And here's a good way to practice this. You go ahead and be as strong as a lion. The Lord wants some lions. But you learn to only confront when you're not angry. Look at Jesus. The way he... I mean, Jesus got angry, but he never got angry because somebody did something to him. I can't find one time. 
He got angry when others were being abused or when somebody was taking advantage of the house of God in defense of others. But when they beat him, he didn't get angry. When they spat on him, even when the Pharisees were trying to trap him, he responded firmly, but he responded with, with, you know, kind of a casual calmness. But when others were involved, that's when he got angry. But most of the time when I get angry, because I'm not Jesus, it's because somebody did something to me. And that's when I justify eating the cupcake, right? We can be courageous. We need to be strong. We need to be vocal sometimes. But we need to learn to do it. And here's the thing. It's probably never the right time as a Christian because I got bad service because my waitress was having a bad day. Or because somebody sat on their horn in traffic. Now, if something needs to be said because the church is you know, struggling and somebody needs to be addressed and confronted, then maybe that's the time to do it. But I still don't need to do it when I'm angry. It takes real courage to confront and be calm. That's a, that's, fellas, that's a man. That takes real courage. Doesn't take a lot of courage to wait till you're so angry and then you just lose control. No. That's just malice. He talks about guile. Guile means trickery, manipulation, to catch with bait. To catch with bait. And and we've seen this as well. People love to do this. They love to make other people look silly or look dumb. You know that? If you don't believe me, just turn on CNN or Fox tonight and just watch about five minutes and you'll see some guile. It's when you're using, I remember as a young man, and I'm ashamed to remember these sins, but me and another buddy, there was one fellow that he was just kind of oblivious. You know what? He was just, he just didn't know. And sometimes we would say things to him that we thought was hilarious because he didn't catch on to what was actually being, I mean, honestly, you know what I'm talking about. The Bible calls that guile and evil. It's wrong. And so when we ever make any kind of comment, joke at the expense of another person, that's a cupcake that should be removed from our diet. He talks about hypocrisy. We all know what that is. That's pretending. That's fakeness. Now, there is a sense in which every Christian is going to have a little bit, when they look in the mirror, of hypocrisy in their life. Why is that? Because we're all striving to be better than we are. I mean, we are. That's not, but real hypocrisy is when you're intentionally putting on a different mask. You're intentionally trying to present yourself as a different person than you are. And it is a tempting, tempting treat. Because, you know, then you can live your life and, to use another food metaphor, have your cake and eat it too. He says, no, put it down. Show, and I love this congregation because of more than any congregation I've ever known or heard of, there's an authenticity here, even in the leaders. I've never seen more elders shed tears than I have at the Waterford Church of Christ standing up there when some of y'all are hurting or you respond into the invitation or whatever it may be. And the, the absolute purge of hypocrisy is authenticity. It is the 
the medicine. It's the prescription to cure hypocrisy, to be real. Because hypocrisy is the opposite of real. And then he says envy. It is, in essence, ill will at the, at the good fortune of other people. There is so much envy that's veiled and presented as different things in this world. Sometimes, and I think ambition is good, but not ambition that is, that is dictated by envy. There's so many things that we try to be because we just want to be as good or better than anybody else. It's rather, rather than a personal desire to be better for the Lord. We should rejoice. I have seen brethren who look and someone will be nominated for an elder or a deacon. And I've heard brethren, not here, but in the hallway, I've heard brethren talk about, well, you know, he, of course he was nominated. Look at the car he drives. Look at the house he lives in. It is just as wrong to be prejudiced against somebody because they have a lot of money as it is to be prejudiced against them because they don't have any. It's still prejudice, and it's still evil, and it's still envy, and it's still greed. It is. And so when we look at folks, we, that shouldn't be our thought process, because really what that's saying is that's saying, I am just green inside because I wish I had what that person has. No, learn to be content. See, contentment is what we need to feast on. We don't need to lace our diet with that tasty treat of envy. And then he says, slander. This is the one that tastes the best. It's got the highest concentration of sugar. This is the Cadbury egg of sins, okay? Have you ever had one of those? You want to kill a diabetic? Give him a Cadbury egg. I mean, it's, it's all over. Those things, I think they're, they're like 1% air and 99% sugar. I mean, it's just a ball of sugar. It, but that's kind of how this one is. Because even though it uses this term, slander, what it really means is gossip. Gossip. And it tastes sweet. Because it just doesn't seem like gossip. You know, it is the, it is the most, I mean, it, just imagine, it is the... Terrible junk food that's packaged as health food, you know? Because we talk ourselves into thinking this conversation's necessary. You know, I come up to you and, well, I'm picking on you, hon. We don't see you here much, so you get picked on, see? So I come up and I talk about Bill and, well, I'm just so worried about Brother Bill. And where I'm moving to, it's going to be, bless his heart. (laughs) I'm just so worried about Bill. I bless his heart because, you know, Bill, I heard that he, and, you know, I've just phrased that. I've just wrapped that tasty, terrible for me treat in health food packaging, haven't I? Because I've made it sound like I'm concerned about him. Do people do this? Here's the thing. We need to ask, is it necessary that I have this conversation? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it important? And what's the real motive? And if the motive is just because I want to say it, that is not a righteous motive. 
no matter how I package it, it's still an unhealthy, sinful treat that needs to be purged from my spiritual diet. Paul was able to become the man he did because he had to put off these things. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. For even after we suffered and were spitefully treated by Philippi, as you know, we were bold to speak God, our, to, bold to our, in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from deceit or uncleanliness, nor was it in guile. But as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who is testing our heart. For neither at this time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, for God is our witness, nor did we seek the glory of men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as nursing mothers cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Paul says, we put aside all, this, all these treats because we loved you. And always remember that that song we sang tonight is the center. It is the, the crux of all that we are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it and can't be separated from it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when I treat somebody with malice because I'm angry, I'm not loving them. That's not my motive. My motive is loving me. And when I am covetousness, envious of what they have, it's not in love for them. It's in love for me. And when I gossip and I have to tell those tasty treats in the hallway, no matter how I package it, it's not because I love them. It's because I love me. Paul says, eliminate all the snack food from your spiritual diet if you want to be healthy and if you want to survive in a world that wants nothing more than to destroy you. And then he says in verse 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow thereby. He says we need to be a people that to grow, we have to hunger for God's word. We have to want the health food, the good stuff that's good for you. And the thing is, is just like physically, you know, things that are good for you, it takes a while to build up your taste to it, right? I'm still working on it. I've been trying to diet and things, and I can tell you that I'm still not a big fan of salads. Unless they get a whole lot of dressing on them, they have a lot of sweet stuff in it. You know, I mean, then it's better. But, but I can tell you this. I switched several years ago because they kept telling me I needed to switch off the sugary drinks, and I switched to diet. And I know some of you may say that's not good for me either. That is not the discussion. This is an illustration. I'm the preacher. I'm going to illustrate with what I want to illustrate with. So that's fine. 
So I switched, but I didn't think I could do it. I mean, I didn't. Because it's like, this is nasty bad, nasty bad. I mean, yuck, how could I, why would I pay money for this? And sure enough, now, after enough time, I didn't even realize when the change had happened, you know? But they've accidentally brought me the real stuff, and I'll take a drink, and I'm, oh! And I remember Seth said to me one time, Dad, What's wrong? It's the good stuff. And I said, not anymore. Not anymore. You understand my point? Sometimes, folks, it's hard to be disciplined in our spiritual walk. It is. It's difficult to want to read your Bible rather than to watch TV. It is. It's difficult to pray rather than all the other things that occupy your mind. It is. But it's difficult. Everything that's difficult has value. That's just a universal truth of existence. And things that are easy, generally, aren't the best things. It's easy to eat cupcakes. It's difficult to learn to like salads. And same is true spiritually. So it's important that we develop that craving within us for things that are good. Because the truth is, it won't just develop on its own. It takes a spiritual discipline. A baby craves after milk. Now, this I love this text right now because we're in, you know, in a, in a month or so, we're going to be seeing that baby all the time. But we still see him all the time because of a wonderful invention called FaceTime. We see him every day. And he's getting, he was Mr. Grumpy, but he's getting happier and happier day by day. And we, we can tell when he's just fed because that boy loves the milk, you know? And he's getting big and fat. I mean, that's the best kind of babies, right? The big, fat, roly-poly ones. And he's getting there because he just loves, his whole life's about milk. I mean, his whole life. And it, it shouldn't surprise us. This illustration is pretty powerful because it says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, he has one thought. That baby only really does two things, eat and sleep. And if he's awake, all he wants is milk. The Bible says that should be every believer. When you're awake, your number one desire should be the pure milk of the word. You should want to grow in the things of God. Matthew 5, of course, right in the middle of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. You see, our diet is to be the pure milk of the word. And I, I like that he says pure milk of the word. And I think this is, I don't know why he used that term in that time, in an ancient culture, but today it particularly has some meaning. Because there are different kinds of milk you can buy now. There's skim milk. Yuck. There's 1%. There's 2%. But then there's real milk, whole milk. He says when it comes to the word of God, you don't need to alter it. You don't need to water it down. You need to desire the real stuff. The pure milk of the word. We have to seek out this purity in our diet. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Colossians 2 verse 8. 
Paul will say it this way, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. He says, beware of the labels because you see the devil will try to package imitations. I mean, I've, there've been a couple of times in my life, someone has served me a bowl of cereal and poured something like almond milk in there and not told me. But I will not be deceived. Because even though that carton says milk and almond and really, really small, and if you like almond milk, this is not a slight on your favorite you know, choice, okay? But let me tell you, it doesn't taste like real milk. No matter what they put on the carton. And he says, don't let the devil deceive you through false philosophies. Deceive. Don't let him package a, a poor substitute for the real thing. Desire the pure milk of the word. And then verse 3, he tells us in our text, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. In other words, what the Lord serves us, it's going to be real, and it's going to be good for you, because the Lord is good, and the Lord loves you. And when I think of that, I can only think of growing up, and every summer I go and stay with my grandparents and my aunt and uncle in Kentucky and Illinois, and my grandma, they lived down on a big farm, and my grandma had a garden that could have fed the nations. You know, anybody have a grandma with a garden that could have fed? You know, it was unbelievable. And I still, man, what I would do to have her cook again for me just once. Because grandma, I mean, when you sat down at her table, and it wasn't like at Thanksgiving, it was like every single night. When you sat down at her table, there was like 11 vegetables, or at least that's how a little boy remembered it. And multiple meats, you know, and it was all fresh. It was all from the garden, or it was catfish we caught in the pond, or it was, you know, cows they grew on the farm, or whatever it may have been. And it was, now it wasn't like what you get at McDonald's. It was absolutely delicious. And I knew it was good for me because my grandma loved me. And my grandma always wanted to serve us the best. He says, we can rely upon a diet of what he's given us because God is good. God is gracious, and he'll only give you what's good for you. What I wish people could know about the commandments of God is God is not a, you know, a heavenly policeman who just wants to keep his children from having those things that they want to have. I believe God wants me to be happy. I believe he wants me to be fulfilled. Because I have children, and I'm not as good a father as he is. And I want my kids to have everything. Now, I don't really want them to have everything, because I'm not sure having everything would be good for them. But anything that's good for them, I want them to have. I want them to enjoy their life. I want them to have great relationships. I want them to be fulfilled and satisfied and successful. But there were things I told them they couldn't have. And there were things that I told them they couldn't do, but never because I wanted to restrict their life, their enjoyment, their happiness. Never. You see, God is our Father, and He's a good Father. 
he's gracious. And if he tells me no on something, it's only because he knows that isn't good for me. That isn't good for me. And he knows best. And it's being questioned everywhere today. You know, it's funny. You can look into so many of these things. You look into some of the sins that our world is now applauding and, you know, they're having all sorts of groups to be able to, I went way long tonight. Oh, well, you, know, you don't have me much longer. I guess you have to put up with me. But, you know, they, they applaud all these things and, and yet you see that suicide rates among some of these communities are higher than any other community. And then, of course, the, the, you know, the, the lie about it is, well, that's because people are being mistreated and they've been, dis- no, no, no. If you live in a way that the Lord says isn't healthy for you, you're not going to be happy. You know, and folks, well, we need to live together to find out if we're compatible. Do you know the people who live together before they're married have a twice as high a divorce rate as people who don't? Even today? Because the Lord knows best. We're out of time. If you're subject to an invitation, come right now as we stand.